This morning, a couple of the song children are going to lead us in the reading of God's word. Lesson from the Epistles, James 1.19 to 2.13. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away any all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away out and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bread bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unsustained from the word. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and five clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among among yourselves and and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and the heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But if you have dishonored the poor man, are you not the rich, the one who, lo- the one who oppresses you, and the, one, and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The word of the Lord. Lesson from the Gospels. Matthew seven twenty four through 27. Please stand for the lesson from the Gospels. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall, because it had been founded on a rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man who built his house on sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. The Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
this is a German story, and this is a famous line from that story. Spiegelein, Spiegelein. On der Wand, wer ist die Schönste in diesem Land? Anybody? Kids? Nobody knows German. Maybe if I said it in English. Mirror, mirror, on the wall, who is the fairest of them all? Nobody's heard. Nobody knows where that's from? Yes, Lindley. Snow White, that's correct. Uh, here's one that's popular in our household. This mirror allows people to see what they most desire. One young orphan, he sees himself in the mirror, flanked by his parents and family. His insecure best friend sees himself as the recipient of a host of awards. Harry Potter. What's the name of the mirror? The mirror. The mirror of Erised, that's right. Oh, here's another one. A young girl steps through this mirror. She finds a weird and surreal world, including a wonderful garden and a fuzzy pair of twins. Anybody? Yep, well, very close. It's the next book in the Alice in Wonderland series, which is... She actually names her friend, Katie Maurice. Over time, she finds that Katie falls short of her real friends in life. Nope. Anne of Green Gables? Did y'all not know this? I thought that was one of my family's favorite books. I thought for sure they would get it. Um, This one comes from a long time ago. Not quite a mirror, but something very similar. A young man becomes so fixated with his own reflection in not a mirror, but a pool of water that he can't move because he's fallen so much in love with his own image and he becomes a flower. Narcissist. You heard of a narcissist? Someone who loves themselves? Well, that comes from Greek um, mythology. This one's the last one. I don't expect many kids to know this one, but some adults might. I think it's a wonderful story. Dark, but wonderful. A young man sells his soul for eternal youth. And he's increasingly distraught as he goes into his room and he sees this portrait of himself that is becoming increasingly grotesque, even though his reflection in the mirror never changes. Annie McConnell, that is right. The portrait of Dorian Gray. Amazing. I hope you haven't read that book yet. But you see, mirrors. Mirrors... uh, In the very basic sense, they're just a reflection. But here in all these stories, mirrors play a much deeper and more significant meaning. These mirrors function to reveal deep and profound truths that are often hidden or inaccessible in real everyday life. That's why James compares the Word of God to a mirror. It's a wonderful metaphor for God's Word. Like all mirrors in these stories, the Word of God is meant to reveal deep and profound truths about our lives. But it's important that just like in these stories, that the mirror must be used in the correct way. That's what we'll be talking about this morning. This morning, our goal is not only to look in the mirror so that we remember what we look like, unlike the man that James talks about, but it's to look in the mirror so that we might see God more clearly. And in seeing God more clearly, that we too might become more like him. So please pray with me. 
Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the clarity of the mirror that you have set before us, the gift that we have in your holy scriptures. We thank you that you have not left us alone in this world, but that you've revealed revealed yourself to us in your word, and most of all, in your Son. Let us gaze upon him. Let's look intently upon him in order that we might receive true life, that we might be changed and transformed to be more like him. I pray that you'd grant us the humility to examine ourselves honestly, that we might experience your word and your law as true freedom. We pray, Lord, that the meditations of our hearts, the words of our mouth might be pleasing in your sight. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, well, this morning we're continuing our sermon series in the book of James that we started last week. In the scenario I laid out last week, this letter was written to a small group of Jewish followers of Jesus who have fled Jerusalem because of persecution, and now they're scattered around all the surrounding regions. And the question that James is attempting to answer is, what does it look like to be a part of the family of followers of Jesus? In other words, what are the implications of the gospel in the way that we live our life? And in order to answer those questions, James gives them a lot of commands. Now, I don't know if you went back home last week and read through the book of James, if you read through it recently, but when you read through the book of James, what strikes you is how many commands there are in the book. Seemingly, in every verse, James is telling his audience what to do. James gives almost 50 commands in a little over than 100 verses. Do we have any doers among us? D-O-E-R-S. Doers? Like type A personalities? The kind of people sit in meetings and say, when is this going to be over? Enough talk. Let's start getting to work. Or... Perhaps you're a kid in class and the teacher passes out a new assignment. And even as she's explaining the assignment, you've already gotten to work. By the time she's finished explaining the instructions, you've finished the assignment. Because, why? You're a doer. You don't have time to waste. If that describes you, then James is likely one of your favorite books in the Bible. Because you read James, like, this is great. Full of actionable steps that I can do in my life and put into practice. And that's a wonderful spirit to have. We would all die if there were no doers among us. It's the kind of spirit that we want to encourage to serve and obey God, but we also must recognize that at the same time, there's danger in our doing. So let's spend some time this morning looking more closely at some of James's commands in order that our doing might be done in a manner that's pleasing and glorifying to God. So this morning, we're going to talk about the three commands. We're actually going to start in chapter 1, verse 21. But in 21, through the end of our section in chapter 2, verse 13, there's actually only three commands. And the three commands find uh, their main fulfillment or kind of the thrust of the text in the very last command, which is in verse 12. So chapter 2, verse 12, the main command of this section says this, So speak, or therefore speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. So this morning, I'd like to ask two questions. Number one, what is this law of liberty that James speaks of? And number two, how then are we to act and speak according to those, or according to those who be judged by this law of liberty? So first question, what is the law of liberty? One important distinction to make, and I don't know if you noticed this, in this passage, James speaks of actually two different but related kinds of laws. 
the word the law occurs six times in our passage. Three times, it just says law. And that's found in verses 10 to, chapter 2, verse 10 to 12. But three other times, it's modified by an adjective or like a qualifier. It says in chapter two, uh, 1, verse 25, in chapter 2, verse 12, the law of liberty. And in chapter 2, verse 8, the royal law. Now, what I want to suggest to you is that the law, when it doesn't have any qualifiers, is different than when James says the law of liberty or the royal law. Now, the first thing we have to emphasize is that the law in and of itself is a good thing. The law is a good thing. As the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 7, he says the Old Testament is holy and all of God's commandments are holy and righteous and good. And the reason they're holy and righteous and good because the law in the Old Testament reflects God's character. God's holy and righteous character is reflected in his holy and righteous laws. The Old Testament says that we are created as God's image, and the way that we bear God's image is by obeying God's commands. The law is a good thing. James, too, has a positive, James also has a positive view of the law. How do we know this? Because the royal law of the kingdom that James references in James chapter 2, verse 8, which I'm sure we've all heard, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, this very law that Jesus himself declares is the second most important law in the entire scriptures. Do you remember that? Someone comes up and Jesus says, Jesus, what is the most important, greatest commandment in the entire Old Testament? And what does Jesus say? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So this royal law, second only to the law of loving God with all of your heart, mind, and soul, is, James says, according to the scripture. What does that mean? You shall love your neighbor as yourself is an Old Testament law. Did you know that? Jesus doesn't make it up. Jesus quotes Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, which says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. James gives commands on how to live as a follower of Jesus, but he does so based on the Old Testament law. Almost every command that he gives in James is in some way reflected in Leviticus chapter 19. So I encourage you this week, go back home, read Leviticus 19, and you'll be shocked because it sounds just like the book of James. So in a very real sense, the law in the Old Testament and the commands that James is giving the followers of Jesus is the same. James is not saying that the law is bad. He's saying the law is good. What he is saying is that the problem is with us. The problem is our relationship to the law. The law is good, but because we are not, our relationship with the law is distorted. James chapter 2, verses 8 through 12 says this, so if you really fulfill this royal law according to the scripture, you shall love the neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and you're convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law, the entire law. He says if you're just guilty of one part of the law, you've broken the entire law. So if that's true, instead, verse 12, speak and act as those who are to be judged not by that law but by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to, us one, to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. 
what James recognizes is that we all have our pet sins. We all have things that we struggle with that we attempt to cover over by saying, well, at least I don't do that. Or at least I don't do that. So he's saying, if you commit the sin of partiality, even though you don't murder, even though you don't do adultery, even though you don't do these kind of very public and grave sins, that you are just as guilty. Because if you break one part of the law, you've broken the whole law. Perfection is the standard that God gives us when it comes to his law. The problem is that by that standard, we're all transgressors and lawbreakers. So you see, the law of liberty, it's not a new law that Jesus gives or that James gives. It's a new way of relating to the law in light of Christ's life, death, and resurrection. I love the way that the author of 1 John puts it. This is John writing in chapter 2, verses 7 through 8, about this same dynamic. Because the question for all these early believers is the same thing. Okay, we were Jewish. We had this one way of life, but now we've become followers of Jesus. How should our life be different? And so John tells them this. Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you've had from the beginning. It's not a new law. It's the old law. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. But at the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing you. Because what is true in him and in you is that the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. See what John's saying? He's saying it's a new law, but it's actually an old law. But it's a new law because it's the old law in a different light. So one example that I was thinking of is uh, during our summer travels, we, our family, ended up popping in a store where everything in the store was color-changing, right? So I, I think we got some, like, color-changing nail polish. There's, like, color-changing clothes, color-changing toys. Everything in the store, in the store looked one way, but outside, in the sunlight, it changed colors. It looked completely different, right? So you have this toy, you take it outside, it's the same toy, but it's a new toy. It's completely different. I think that's what James, John, the writers of the New Testament is trying to say. It's the same law. The commandments are the same. But in light of Christ's death and resurrection, it has now become a new law because the way that you relate to that law is different. It's completely changed. Because of Christ's death and sacrifice for us on the cross received by us by faith, the law no longer condemns us even though we're lawbreakers. Romans chapter 8, verse 1 through 2 says this, There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life, which is Paul's version of the law of liberty, he calls it the law of the spirit of life. It has set us free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. We are now free to obey the law because we no longer obey God's law in order to be loved and accepted by him. Because we're already loved and accepted by God in Christ Jesus fully and completely, now we are able to obey God's law. We're free now to obey God's law. That is the law of liberty. The Apostle Peter says it this way, live as people who are free. Right? Freedom is this theme that's all throughout the Old Te- or New Testament. In our kind of modern day, the way that we think of it, freedom is just absence of constraints. 
Freedom is the ability and opportunity to do whatever I want without somebody or something telling me what I must do or choose. But that's not freedom in the Bible. Peter says this, live as free people. He wants you to be free. But what is freedom? Do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but live as servants of God. Peter says you are free. Now use that freedom to love and serve God. So the law of liberty, if I would try to kind of define it as concisely as I could, the law of liberty is the Christian's new relationship to the Old Testament law that Christ has completely fulfilled for us in order that we can now obey it in the freedom and spirit of the Holy Spirit. That is the law of liberty. So then, if that's the law of liberty, how do we speak and act according to this? To people that would not be judged in condemnation under the old law, but people who would be judged by the law of liberty. And there's three things that come from this passage. One is we're to be doers of the word. Number two, we're not to show partiality. And number three, we're to not judge others, or in other words, we're to be humble. So first, to be doers of the word. James chapter 1, verses 22 through 27 Be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and he goes away, and at once he forgets what he looks like. But the one who looks into this perfect law, the law of liberty, and he perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious, but does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, that person's religion is worthless. Instead, religion that's pure and undefiled before God is this, to visit widows and orphans in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So when you read God's word, James is telling us when you gaze into this mirror, so to speak, you should have two questions in your mind as you're reading. The first is, what is God like? The Holy Scriptures are God's self-revelation of himself to us. So when you're reading scripture, you first ask, number one, what is God like? And the second question is, how can I become more like him? What is God like and how can I become more like him? Because the baseline command in the entirety of scripture of what it means to be human is to be like God. Our sin is to take it a step further and to say to be God, to make our own choices, to determine for ourselves what is right and wrong. But the Bible says what we are called and commanded to do is to be like God, primarily as he is revealed in the Holy Scriptures, especially in the person of Christ, that the Bible calls the image of the invisible God. The author of Hebrews says that Christ is the exact imprint of God's nature. So the overarching command in all of Scripture is to be like God, and this is seen seen in the particular commands that James gives his listeners. Because the commands that James gives are commands that reflect the heart of God in the entire Old Testament. So to his Jewish readers, it's not surprising that James would say, true religion is taking care of orphans and widows in their affliction. Because that's all over the Old Testament. You can't read the Old Testament and not know that God has a special place in his heart for the marginalized, the needy, and the oppressed. Psalm, eight, uh, Psalm 68, verse 5. God is the father of the fatherless and the protector of the widows. 
Psalm 146, verse 9, the Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. Leviticus 19, which I encourage you to read, the chapter that we've established is the primary basis for James's commands. It includes instructions to take care of the poor within the community. It says this, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up, its, right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. Do you remember the story of Ruth? If you're not familiar with this story, this is a story of, uh, there's a righteous man, righteous man named Boaz, and there's a widower named Naomi and her daughter-in-law who lost her husband named Ruth. Now, Ruth and Naomi are destitute, and Ruth goes to glean in the fields of Boaz. And because Boaz is a righteous man who attempts to be like God, who has a heart for the needy, Boaz leaves gleanings for people like Ruth to pick up. That's God's heart. And that's what he calls us to have that same kind of heart. So, those who are to speak and act as if they are judged by the law of liberty, they say Christ's death and resurrection on our behalf is the basis of my obedience. And in continual dependence upon the Holy Spirit abiding in Christ, we strive to be like God, to love what he loves and to hate what he hates. So that's why James gives this example, because it's very clear from the Old Testament law that God loves those widows and orphans who are in need and unable to take care of themselves. And one of the most distinctive traits of the church in all of Christian history is its care for the marginalized and the oppressed, those on the fringes of society who are unable to take care of themselves. Why? Because it's a reflection of God who gives grace to the humble and opposes the proud, as he says later in James. But I mentioned earlier at the very beginning that there can be a danger in our doing. And that's, we can oftentimes, perhaps even unknowingly, drift toward what the Bible calls legalism. Now, you might have heard this word before, I'm not sure, but legalism essentially is the belief that our relationship with God is dependent upon my actions, the things that I do. God will be pleased with me if I obey the commands of Leviticus 19 and the book of James. Rather than the finished work of Jesus on the cross, which is the basis for our obedience. Now, as I said, this is oftentimes that we're not, you know, uh, entirely conscious of. We don't wake up in the morning thinking, you know what, today I'm going to earn my standing before God by doing good things. But it's something that we can drift into unknowingly, perhaps even subconsciously. And so I provided for us two tests this morning, two tests to know whether you have drifted toward legalism. First test, how do you respond when an unwanted event comes in your life? Does this thought pop into your head? I don't deserve this because of the things that I have done. How could this happen to me since I have been a faithful Christian? I have done all, I have cared for the orphans and the widows, yet how could this happen to me? If you find that heart within yourself, that might be a hint that you've drifted toward legalism, that you're looking to your own works as the basis of your standing before God. The second test is somewhat like it, and it's closely related to what comes on later in this passage, and it's having a spirit of judgmentalism. When you drift toward legalism, 
You have a spirit of judgmentalism, particularly toward those who are not as obedient as you are. What can often happen is that you come to judge others who do not meet the standards that you yourself believe to have attained. It might happen like this. Perhaps you read James, you hear a sermon on the book of James, the necessity of taking care of orphans and widows, and you commit yourself to get involved in a ministry that's directly involved in caring for orphans and widows. But over time, as you become more involved, you start to become critical of those who are not as involved as you are, who are not as passionate, who are not as committed, who are not obeying God's commands in the way that you are and you think that they should be. This is a sign that you have become the judge. And if there's anything that this passage in James will tell us, it's that the seat of the judge is the most dangerous place for you as an individual to be. So yes, we should be fully committed to caring for those who cannot take care of themselves. God has richly blessed our churches, our church with tremendous resources, money, talents, time, We're to give sacrificially, especially to those who cannot help themselves. Yet we must also always be aware of the dangers of our doing, that they would not become the basis for which we believe God is pleased with us, but the fruit or the outgrowth of what God has already done on our behalf for us. So that's first, be doers of the word. We want to be a church that is doers of the word. But secondly, we also want to be a church that does not show partiality. This is what James says in chapter 2, verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold to the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And he gives a very vivid picture that I think we can all think of right now. If a man wearing a gold ring and a fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing comes in at the very same time, You see these two people coming in and you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and you say, you sit here in a good place. Look at this seat that we have saved just for you. While you say to the poor man, why don't you just stand over there? Or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges? With evil thoughts, listen, my brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? which he has promised to those who love him. Here again, James calls us not to show partiality. Why? Because God doesn't show partiality. If anything, James tells us that God has chosen those who are poor in the world, verse 5, to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. So in dishonoring the poor man, we dishonor the very person that God has bestowed special honor upon. If we do that, we show that we are still living in the darkness and not yet in the light. James says you cannot claim to both be a Christian and show partiality. Or, in showing partiality, you give evidence that you have not really understood in some fundamental way the gospel or grasped the power of forgiveness. And if individuals are prone to favoritism, individuals... I mean, who of us has never shown partiality to someone? For whatever reason, rich and poor, they have some sort of influence, they have something that you desire, and so you treat them better, hoping that they will give you something in return. 
And if individuals like us are prone to favoritism, so too are churches, because churches are, pro- are made up of individuals, first of all, but they're not immune to the temptation of, of partiality because running a church is expensive. Having a property requires a lot of finances. Shouldn't we show those with more resources some sort of partiality in order that they become a stable giving base for our church? Shouldn't we show more influential people in the community some sort of special favor in order that they might bring others into our church, in order that they might increase the influence of our church? Churches are prone to think this way. Remember last week, though, what we talked about? That all the commands in James are not given to individuals, but to groups of people. We said all the yous are y'alls. And so when it says don't show favoritism, he's not speaking just to us as individuals, but he's speaking, I think primarily, first of all, especially in the example that he gave, to us as a church. He says, churches, y'all don't show favoritism. He's asking us, can we be the kind of church that speaks and acts according to the law of liberty in the way that we treat all people equally? To know that not a single one of us is anything to commend ourselves before God apart from Christ. Because that is the basis for why we don't show partiality. Because all of us are equal in the sight of God, in need of his mercy and his forgiveness. And lastly, connected to that, so be doers of the word. Don't show partiality. And lastly, do not judge or be humble. For verse 13, for judgment is without mercy to those who have shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, thankfully, for us, particularly for some of us in our congregation, we do not have the expectation that our judges will be perfect. Of course, we want our judges to be people of exemplary integrity, moral rectitude, but perfect? No. That's an unattainable standard. We recognize that. In God's economy, however, that's not the case. He says, if you want to be a judge, you must be perfect. What does Jesus say? Judge not, lest you be judged. Because in God's economy, transgressors cannot be judges. God can judge. Christ can judge. You and I, though, we must stand before the judge. The point that James seems to be making is that when you break one part of the law, you break the entire law. The point is, you can't do it. You can't keep the law. So, you also shouldn't judge others who can't keep the law. A right understanding of the law and our place in it prevents us from ever judging anybody else. You ought to be humble and show mercy to others because you have been shown mercy for yourself. There indeed is condemnation for those who are judged under the law of liberty. Did you catch that? I mean, the law of liberty is wonderful for us. It's the grace of the gospel. It's the free forgiveness of Jesus on the cross for all of us. But under the law of liberty, there are people who are judged and condemned. Under the law of liberty, the only people who are judged and condemned are those who refuse to extend to others the mercies that they have themselves received. The only way that you can be judged under the law of liberty is if you're unwilling to be forgiving and merciful to others, thereby proving that you yourself have never truly received God's mercy in the first place. 
I'd like to conclude this morning with a beautiful story in the Gospels that I think just so perfectly encapsulates James chapter 2. This story comes from John chapter 8. It's at the very end of the chapter. And um, you might, if you read John chapter 8 in the Bible, starting with uh, 753, you'll see like a little note sometime in the Bible say like, the earliest manuscripts do not have uh, this story in it. We're not sure if this is original. Uh, I think it is original. It might not be, but even if it's not original to the manuscript in John, I believe it, it so captures the spirit of Jesus and the Gospels that it's a true story about Jesus' life. Like, it did happen, even if it didn't make it initially into the Gospel of John. Does that make sense? Okay. It is a beautiful story. It says this, just John chapter 8. Let's start at verse 2. Early in the morning, he again came to the temple. And all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees, they brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, placing her in their midst. They said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, according to the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So capital punishment reserved for the adulterer. What do you say, Jesus? They said this to te- uh, this they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down, and he wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and he said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one. This is a wonderful detail, beginning with the older ones, who more clearly see their sin, of course. So if you're worried about getting older... Here is one great blessing and benefit that the scriptures tell us. The older ones more clearly recognize their sin, but eventually Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus stands up and he says to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. So this woman's been caught in an act of adultery and according to the law, as James says it, he gives the example of adultery. In failing one point of the law, she's become guilty of all of it. She's a transgressor. She's a lawbreaker. And according to the law, this is the Old Testament law, she's guilty of adultery, deserving of capital punishment. But what does Jesus say? Let him who is out sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. In other words, who here is worthy to judge? Can any of you among us claim to be without sin? If so, go ahead, you be the judge. But no one's able to. And then I think the sweetest words that anyone can ever hear from Jesus, he says to this woman caught in an act of grave sin, neither do I condemn you. Church, Jesus, the holy and righteous judge, the only one who deserves to be the judge, the only one who can have the stone in their hand to condemn anyone, the one who has kept God's law perfectly, he says to you, neither do I condemn you. The Gospels then record the very depth and the distance that Jesus will go in order to show that you are not condemned. He will take your place. And in our story, 
that we have here in John 8, because Jesus does not condemn her, she can go and sin no more. Did you see that? The story doesn't end with, neither do I condemn you. I mean, that's a great ending. It's beautiful, so powerful and moving. It could have ended right there, neither do I condemn you. But then Jesus says, now go and sin no more. Because you're not condemned by the old law, but now you live under the law of liberty. She can now speak and act as those who are to be judged in the law of liberty because she's no longer condemned by the law. She has been set free. Because Jesus was judged under that old law in order that we might be judged under a new law, the law of liberty that frees us to obey God and live lives that are holy and pleasing to him. Our passage tells us mercy has triumphed over judgment. Indeed, it has in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Hallelujah. What a savior. And I forgot this last week. Didn't preach for eight weeks. So I just, I don't know, I forgot about it. But Isaiah 48, as we end all of our sermons, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God, this wonderful mirror that the Lord has given us, it will stand forever. Let us pray. Father God, the problem with mirrors is that they are an accurate reflection of who we are, and oftentimes we don't like what we look like, and not just physically, but spiritually as well. Oftentimes we look into your word, we see all these commands of James And we just think how we have fallen short. I'm not committed to the care of widows and orphans. I'm not slow to speak or slow to anger. I often judge people in my heart. I do it all the time. As we look into your word, you give us an accurate reflection of who we are. Yet at the same time, we pray that you would give us a true picture of who Christ is. And the true picture of Christ is that his mercy does indeed triumph over any judgment that we might experience. That his forgiveness and his mercy is deeper and stronger than any of our sins and any of the ways that we have fallen short. And the truth of the matter is that because he has been judged by the law, that we now live in the law of freedom. And I pray that you would help us by the power of your Holy Spirit to not use our freedom as a cover-up for evil, but to live as servants of God. Give us eyes to see the needs in this world in order that we might be your ambassadors, that we might be your witnesses of a new and better kingdom, a new and better way of life, one in which we obey not to be loved, but obey because we are loved. Help us to know deeply in security that love in Christ. We thank you so much for him, Jesus, strong and kind. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.